you will, while I'm reading this, turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 3. It's where our focus will be uh, this morning. 2 Timothy 3, we'll be looking at verses uh, 1 uh, through 13. While you're turning there, Jamila, I'm not sure if I'm saying that correctly. Uh, Jamila is a beautiful girl in her early 20s. She finished high school and her father allowed her to get a job. She loves working as a secretary. Recently, her father decided it was time for her to be married. They found a man through a friend of the family. He is from a village about three hours away. Her father arranged the marriage with his family without the two ever meeting. As I talk with her about her wedding, she is very sad. She is not a joyful bride. Instead, she is nervous and upset about leaving her family, friends, and job and the city to move into his family home in the village. She doesn't know how often she will get to see her family or even leave the house. This is a typical story, yet is one that breaks my heart. However, Jamila has heard the good news and has a Bible. She has also been asking many questions about the Bible. Please pray for this young girl to continue asking questions and reading the book. Ask the father, ask that the father would draw her to himself and she would have true joy in him no matter what her circumstances may be. And as I'm praying about that, uh, that request, I'm thinking about the scripture passages that uh, we'll be talking about this morning. Knowing a little bit about the cultural context of where uh, this young lady may be. Um, outside of the marriages and the arranged marriages and set up that, and that's another discussion. Uh, there's the thought that probably this man that she is going to be married is a Muslim and probably a very devout Muslim, very strict. And knowing that the culture they're in, they have things like honor codes and um, the reality that if I pray for this young lady who has questions of the Bible and I pray that the gospel will come to her and I pray that she will have eyes to see the truth of who Jesus Christ is and that she can see the sin of her life and see the need for forgiveness. If I pray these things and she receives this and responds with a soft heart to the gospel call and she starts reading the scriptures and studying the, the New Testament or the Injil as they call it and, and starts living her life differently, I know that in all probability she is going to a context where the husband... Uh, will have very strict directions. And if he finds out that she is a believer, there is a strong likelihood that this young lady will be persecuted and could even be killed for her faith. And I'm sitting here praying and knowing what the reality may be. And I ask myself, should I pray that she comes to the knowledge of Jesus Christ even though it may be a very difficult death. And that's the prayer I'm praying. How do you pray that? God, may she know the truth of Jesus Christ and surrender to you. And may she be conformed to you and uh, not be transformed or not be conformed to the world that she lives in, but be transformed by Jesus. May she stand out as a light to her husband, a light to the family. And Lord, even if she is a peacemaker, even if she's persecuted, even if she's killed, though as brief as that life may be, let that light shine brightly in that brief moment. 
Do you ever have mixed feelings about prayers like that? You ought to. I do. We have mixed feelings about that. And so with that scenario in mind that I pray hundreds of people were praying for, uh, and, and maybe thousands, I don't know, were praying for this young lady. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 13. This is going to be an end time sermon. Sermon about the end times. Maybe not quite what you had in mind, but it's there. It's in scripture nonetheless. And there's some things for us to learn. I, I want to uh, bring some phrases to your attention uh, that uh, encapsulate the ideas of this passage. And so let's stand as we read to this together. 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 13. Paul has been talking about false teachers that are professed believers in the church and encouraging Timothy to be strong, be faithful, endure, teach, confront, suffer. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Johnnes and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be made plain to all, as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love. My steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium and Lystria, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. You may be seated. As we read this passage, you see in verse 1 that he understands this is qualities, a very dismal uh, picture of last day's living. Now you need to understand that in Paul's mind, the mind of the writers, the last days began when Jesus ascended to be in heaven with the Father and the Holy Spirit descended to be among the believers. And so in God's scheme of things... Uh, from the prophecies and the fall of mankind uh, to 
John the Baptist to Jesus's incarnation to the cross, the resurrection, to the ascension. These were all main points. And the only thing that remains is Jesus's return and calling up the church to be with him. So that's in their mind. And the last days is everything that happens from the ascension to the return. Paul says uh, he believes we, we see this, that this time period is in the last days because later on he says avoid these people he says these people that are in last days living are around us avoid them so in paul's mind he is in last days living uh and i would say we are in last days living though this has been said by believers for two thousand years i would have to say well we're two thousand years closer than we were before but as we look at these qualities we'll see them we'll see them around us There have been time periods where the church and the society at large have seen these qualities rise and that God had set things back with revival movements where a whole cell, large groups of people will come to the Lord. And we've seen this in our own nation. Multiple times nationwide revivals and always the times before that were wholesale depravity of mankind in ways that our country had not known before. So we see this happens in the 1700s and the 1800s and the early 1900s to some degrees. And so as I look at these qualities and I see them around us and as I read them to you, perhaps you see them around you, you start thinking, oh my, here we are in the last days living. And yes, we are in the last days living, but who knows whether or not God can bring a revival to a nation to push back the evil hearts of mankind. He can do that. He has done that. But if God does not, then it leads us down this road of progressing further into sin. So do not be surprised as you in your lifetime can see differences of how you were when a child and how you are now in society at large. Do not be surprised. And I would say to you, as if God does not tarry, there is no reviving work, then our children's generation will see worse and more of the same so as we read this the last days living he says there will come times of difficulty the word difficulty is the word the same word used one other time used to describe the demon possessed man that jesus encounters and the word there translated is fierce know this that in the last days there will be times of fierceness It has a violent edge to it. We are going to be living and we will be seeing, unless the Lord tarries, violent edge to mankind. And then verse 2 explains it. Why are things going to get fierce? Why are things going to get violent? Why are things going to get worse? He says, well, let's look at the heart of man. And so let me just summarize this statement of what we're going to be reading is simply this the situation is that man mankind will progressively increase in sin the situation simply is that mankind will progressively increase in sin and the degree of it and in the magnitude of it so here we go be encouraged verse 2 For people will be lovers of self. And he gets right to the heart here, right to the root of the problem. Uh, And everything else is going to flow from this one idea that we will love ourselves more and more and more. Now, uh, this can be coined as the word narcissism. There will be growing narcissism. 
This is uh, looking back to the legend of the person who loved looking at his own reflection. All right. And so there's going to be a growing tendency in mankind that we will love to look at ourselves and adore ourselves. So, how does that happen? Let me just bring up one word. Facebook. I don't know if it's two words. Facebook. Social media. Now, use of Facebook is not inherently wrong. I also have to do some confession. Okay? But here's what it can do, and other social medias can do this, is when you spend the bulk of your mind and your hope thinking, what has someone said about me on Facebook? I put a picture on Instagram. How many favorites do I have on my picture? How many people are, there's a term now, selfie. Put a selfie online. What does that mean? You took a picture of yourself and you put it online. And then you judge your worth based on how many people marked it, favored it. See how many comments are being made of some status point that you put on. And you spend your days looking Looking, looking, what have people been saying about me? Now, it's a very crude way of describing what's going on. But um, am I really too far off the truth? I'm just presenting to you that these are outlets, but they're not just outlets. They become mills themselves. They're not just expressions. They become things that nourish a narcissism if we're not careful. And I'm just going to present to you that there is an age in the last 15 to 20 years that's different from the last 10 to 15 before that. And I would mark it as a growing increase of all things self. All things self. There will come times where men will love themselves more than they did before. Now, we see this idea of progression all throughout jesus himself made reference to it in matthew 24 verse 9 through 14 he says then they will deliver you up to tribulation put you to death and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake and then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray and because lawlessness will be increased the love of many will grow cold but the one who endures to the end will be saved This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and the end will come. Jesus described it as lawlessness will increase and so consequently the love of many will grow cold. We will grow loveless. Loveless. As one singer said, where is the love? Where is the love? When the hearts of many grow cold. How does that happen? Because the love of self has increased. And where the love of self grows, you cannot love others and you cannot love God. You cannot put the need of mankind, you cannot put the desires of God above your own when you love yourself. Just simple. So, he goes on and elaborates a little bit more. What does this look like? He says, well, lovers of money. Lovers of money. Materialism. 
materialism. Now, let me just burst your bubble just a little bit. Because as I read these things and I love yourself, love my proud, disobedient parents, unthankful, unholy. Un, you're saying, Jared, this is a good sermon. <laughs> Tell them. Tell them all about it. Complain with me about the age we live in. But I want to just bring out a little uh, important interpretation point here. Who is Paul talking to and about whom? Paul is talking to Timothy. And the context is he is talking about people who are in the church. He is talking about false teachers. He is talking about people who are professed followers of Jesus. <laughs> That's a little bit different, isn't it? Oh my. There will come a day where those who profess to follow Jesus will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, infeasible, slanderous, without self-control, and goes on. So let me just say, if, the, if those who are professed as followers of Jesus are this way, how much more those who are not followers and professing followers of Jesus? I just want to bring out this point. And so there, there's a temptation within me to say, does the church of America look like this in any way? And I could go there, but I'm afraid I can't do it in the right spirit. But let me just bring out this one point. When we talk about lovers of money, let me just bring out this one statistic here, this one thing to consider. Did you realize that the evangelical church world today in America, the percentage of what they give, tithing to the Lord, or their attempts of tithing, is something in the 3% range. Here's the reality point. The average what church people in America give today is less, is less than the average of what People in church gave in America in the 1930s in the Great Depression. How do you explain that? Other than the fact that those who are professed followers of Jesus in America have grown in love with money. Giving is the tell I don't think I have to say any more about that. Men will grow in their pride. Loving to draw attention to their own accomplishments. Again, Facebook. <laughs> social media. Bumper stickers. Everything else. But that, that is more than just these expressions. It's the spirit behind it, isn't it? Proud. I'm afraid the church in America has been proud. The professed followers of jesus and we'll say look at our buildings look at our staff look at our, at our budgets and look at the missions that we do be very careful did we do that or did god do that arrogant and an inflated view of ourselves abusive we want to be verbally hurtful to others i will share with you some of you know that one of the hardest arenas to fail in is failing in church. 
The abuse that comes when you fail as a church member can be extensive. Disobedient to their parents. I often thought when I first read this and first tried to study this years ago, I thought, man, you got all these things. Slanders, proud, arrogant, abusive, lovers of money, ungrateful, unholy, unpeaceable, slanders, without self-control, brutal, disobedient parents. I always thought that seemed a little out of place. But really, is that a big deal? It is. The problem is it's not a big deal with us. But disobedience to parents is to simply say there is a rebellious spirit toward God and those who God puts in their life. Over the past few years, government officials and experts have seen an increasing number of children leave home for life in the streets, including many under 13. Foreclosures, layoffs, rising food, fuel prices, inadequate supplies of low-cost housing have stretched families to the extreme. These pressures have trickled down to teenagers and preteens. Federal studies and experts in the field have estimated that at least 1.6 million juveniles run away or are thrown out of their homes annually. I say, yeah, that's growing. Ungrateful. Ungrateful. Assuming that they have a right to the things they get. Assuming they have a right to the things they get. You know there's another word for that? Entitled. Entitled. Do you understand that being a part of a church is a gift? Being part of a church body is a gift. For me to be able to be here is a gift to me. For you to be a part of a church is a gift that God has given us. And somewhere along the way, We've stopped thinking as a gift and that we're entitled to it. And not only we're entitled to it, we're entitled to that church being certain things and having certain services. And so now there's competitions among churches as to which service can provide the best service to their customers. I just look at that and I think, where is this? In the Bible. And I don't see it. We have to be careful. Because the gifts that are given to us. And we start thinking are we entitled to these things. Stop and thank God. For the blessings. That God is giving you. Ungrateful. Unholy. We are indifferent to the attitudes and acts. That reflect the value of Jesus. We always want to bring up the love of God. But you don't hear much about the holiness of God. And without the holiness of God. You cannot understand God's love. One of the Presbyterian groups. Is contemplating. A song I think in Christ alone. That's written by Keith and Christy Giddy. What's popular we've sung it here. Uh, many times. And because of the popularity of the song, they're, they're trying to consider to include it in their hymn books because it's so well known. But there's a line in there that talks about the, the wrath of God is satisfied. And they don't like it. And they're asking, can we put in the, love, the line instead that the love of God is magnified on the cross? Let's talk about the love of God and let's not talk about the wrath of God being satisfied. What's the problem with that? There is an... <laughs> 
a, a glossing over the holiness of God and that we are not holy, that we that we want to talk about quickly God's love, but apart from the wrath of God, we cannot understand the mercy of God. A Christ without a cross. Is that we something we're going to lift up? It it ties to unholy. And to think that we can categorize our life and say, you know what? I'm going to worship God here. I'm going to sing among God's people. I'm going to look at it. I'm going to do the Bible study. I'm going to read God's word. But when I'm on the computer by myself, then I have a separate category. It doesn't apply. Unholy. Or lust is commonplace among men and women. Heartless, verse 3. Unable to sympathize or empathize. So many things going on. How can we have a heart for all these things? It's estimated there's 21 million human trafficking victims worldwide. More than then the 1800s. We live in the slave age, but we can't get our mind around that. We can't get our heart there until someone's found in Ohio, kidnapped slaves for 10 years in their home, suburbia area, but it's around us. According to the FBI, there are currently an estimated 293 293,000 American children at risk of being exploited and trafficked for sex. A lot of times from children running away. Majority of the children being sold are girls between the ages of 12 and 14. We have a hard time getting our mind around that. We don't want to go there. We don't want to think about that. It's hard having a heart that can reach out to that. We can be heartless. Unappeasable. Unwilling to forgive. Unwilling to forgive. When we think it's okay not to forgive someone. And that we can go on and progress somehow in our Christian walk. And we've got unforgiveness in our heart. I keep on reading. Slanderous, devilishly distorting what others say and do. It's the words used to describe the devil. That's why it's devilish in what we do when we slander. The motives and things and what others are doing, distorting what they say. Without self-control. A slave to the appetites. Brutal. Dead to all tenderness. Not loving good. Unable to see and savor moral beauty. Verse 4, treacherous, tendency to break promises for our own advantages, reckless, we, we crave admiration and we'll take risk to do it, swollen with conceit, we're blind to the ugliness of our own self-preoccupation and the beauty of admiring others. So when I bring up Facebook and, and other things, we think, oh, <laughs> never thought about that, because we're being blinded. Swollen with our conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. 
that we find more satisfaction in being titillated in our physical senses than some divine admiration. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. This is why I say they are Christ-professing followers. They have a form of godliness. But they deny its power. They are not submitted to Holy Spirit. And listen, here's the reality. There's really two spheres you can live in as a believer. There's the sphere of Christ submitting to Him, following Him. Let Christ fill your life. Be satisfied with Him. Surrender to Him. The other sphere is yourself. Be satisfied with what you want, your agenda, your plan, your desires. And you let Christ serve yourself. But you're not in the sphere of Christ, you're in the sphere of self. And then if you're in that sphere, you go down the road of 2 Timothy 3. It's just a matter of time. And the only saving grace to get out of the road of 2 Timothy 3 of end days living, last days living, is to go in the sphere of Christ and say, Christ, I surrender my agenda, my mind, my hopes, my dreams, my past, my present, my future with you. I want you. I desire you. Let me be satisfied with you. You pray that. You seek it. You make that your desire. God is making it in your, in your heart. That is where the power is at. So the mankind in this discussion is the professed believer. They're using religion for personal gain without treasuring Christ above all. When I am with a dear brother whose children died and our son died and I tell him, encourage him to pray and I'm trying to be sensitive to this story. But he says to me, why should I pray? What's the point anyway? God didn't answer my prayers. My heart's breaking for him. But I realize that all the time he has been using Christ to serve his purposes of having a safe family. And when that didn't come through, then God's no more. To follow Christ is not an easy thing. Do you understand the, right, the, the price we pay when we say, I want to follow Christ above all things? To say, I want to follow Christ above my children, above my family. And then at the end of verse 5, he says, avoid such people. That doesn't mean you don't talk to them because he's going to tell them to talk to them. But he says, Watch how they influence you. This is not the person you're going to seek day to day, week to week, and say, how much time can I spend with this person? You're going to talk to them. But don't let them be your influence, to be your director. Avoid such people. Verse 6, for among those, and, and now he's going to talk about what they do. For among those are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins, led astray by various passions. Now, let me just say something here. He's not talking about women in general. Okay? I think it's important for us to understand that. Um, But he is identifying that in that place, in Ephesus, where this is going on, that there are women who do not know what they believe, who are not held firm to Jesus Christ, 
uh, that they have these sins that they're accumulating in their life. They're not getting clean with the Father in these things. They're not seeking the continual forgiveness and cleansing work of, of what God can do. Uh, and they are led astray by the passing fads and the leading teachers and the charismatic ones. And so they, they listen in. And, and what, what he is saying is that these people who have a form of godliness, who are craving power, influence, they have no problem whatsoever finding women like that and finding people like that and, and teaching them, trying to get them to be well impressed by them so that they can receive from them things that satisfy their own pleasures. This happens. It happens not just in Ephesus, it can happen today. And this is why it's so important for men and for women to know what you believe, to search the scriptures, to be aware, to find your satisfaction in the spirit of God and in his word, not in just teachers. Beware of that. There are some good teachers. But when I see folks really sold out on teachers and whatever they write, they're going to read. Be careful. Be careful. If there's anything good that comes from that teacher, it came from God. Let your affections be toward him, not through the vessels. Every vessel can lead astray. They are imperfect. Beth Moore's good. I enjoy reading some of her stuff. Joyce Meyer, I don't enjoy personal opinion it's just me there are other ladies and lead to moss there are others good let's take it to the men johnny hunt he was instrumental in my salvation a vessel used agent rogers one of the heroes i've had stephen olford charles stanley go to today's generation and some that are going out there. Matt Chandler, Mark Driscoll, John Piper. It's not quite the same generation, but good things to be gleaned from, but don't fall in love with them. Don't say, whatever they say, I'm going to say, I'm going to believe and fall head over heels. If there's good that's come from them, it's come from God. Let my affections be on them. Do not be swayed by the passing things. Go back to the word of God. Be discernment. Use discernment that God gives you. There are some who look good, but may have malicious intents. I'm not saying that about these people. Whether they do or not, God knows. But there are some who look good but can have malicious attempts, according to verse 6. Always learning and never able to make, able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Somewhere along the way, <laughs> the next Bible study is the last thing some of us need. For some of us, we just need to do what's been told. And we haven't been obedient, so maybe I'll go to another Bible study. For some of us, that's the last thing we need. For others, that's exactly what you need. And you always need Bible in your life, but you also need to do. You need to obey what God has called us to do. And so there's these who are always learning, always searching, but their minds being corrupted. 
And, and they're not doing. They're never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. In verse 8, he makes this allusion to these two characters. And these two names uh, come out of Jewish tradition. The Jewish tradition was that these two individuals were the magicians in Pharaoh's court in Moses' day that duplicated the, the plagues, the first three plagues that Moses did. So it comes out Jewish tradition with these two names to say, consider these men, how they duplicated power of God. But somewhere along the way, they stopped. They couldn't, they couldn't match what God was doing. And so that's where these men come from. And so in verse 8, he says, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted of mind and disqualified regarding the faith. He says, there's historical precedent of this, but considered what happened. Verse 9, they will not get very far, for their folly will be made plain to all, as was that of those two men. You way those who look religious give them time watch their life and he says just like johnny's and john bray's it became evident to all it will be evident when people are just of the form of godliness or whether there is a power of god there and so he says just watch and see now let's go to verse 10 all that under this one idea this one phrase the situation is that mankind will progressively increase in sin. We've seen the specific details of it. We can see the actions of it uh, and, and how it comes about in the end times. You see this again, verse 13. He goes back to the idea, evil people, imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. All right. So their lies are reproducing in their heart and mind and they cannot see the truth. Now, Verse 10, because that is the case, because that mankind will progressively increase in sin, it, which makes the immediate future for the Christ-filled believer deadly dangerous. The immediate future of the Christ-filled believer deadly dangerous. So what's at stake? Society gets worse. Persecution will grow. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's been estimated that there are 100 million Christians being persecuted around the world today. You realize that it is more in number than the days of the Roman emperors. You know, the lions and gladiators and Christians as human torches and all that kind of thing. That's, there's more persecution taking place today going on so verse 10 he says all right here's the alternative if you just go down your selfish life this is what's going to happen verse 10 let me present to you another way you however have followed and he lists out my teaching this is the gospel my conduct the godliness the the gospel in action my aim in life his aim in life according to paul is that he will know christ that he will know christ and that he will go to places where there is no knowledge of the gospel. That's his aim in life. Uh, and so you've got his conduct, his aim in life, his faith, his patience, his love, his steadfastness, his persecutions and sufferings. So he's saying, Timothy, you know who I am. You've seen this in my life. You may have tracked the stories of my life. You've seen, and he starts listing out places. Antioch, Iconium, Lystra. Lystra is where Timothy grew up. Lystra was where 
uh, Paul was stoned, left out to be to to die, miraculously came, was revived, came back, and went back to the city, and then was ushered out. That's how Timothy met Paul in those days, and so. He says, remember these things, how this has happened in my life, my teaching, conduct, my faith, my, my perseverance, my love, my steadfast. My... So this is the life of Christ. We've got the life of self. And now here's the life of Christ. And he says, Timothy, I've modeled it for you. You've seen this. You know what this looks like, what it is to be filled with Christ. And then he says, which persecutions I endured, yet from all of them, all from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and apostles will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Verse 12. It is one of the least claimed, hoped in promises in the scripture. You don't see that promise on a coffee mug. All right. No one's putting that on the wall. Yea, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will, will endure persecution. There, there's not a condition in that. He just says it's going to happen. I, I think about the Beatitudes when, when Jesus talks about the Beatitudes and he starts off with saying, Blessed are those who are poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on listing out the Beatitudes and he goes back after being a peacemaker. He says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says from the very beginning, kingdom of heaven, to the very end, kingdom of heaven, at the very beginning, being bankrupt in your spirit, at the end result, being a peacemaker to the point of persecution. Jesus assumed it was going to happen. And you're blessed if you do, according to Jesus. Somewhere along the way, we start realizing that God and Jesus start considering our safety, our life, our time span, maybe differently than how we do. It seems like God is acknowledging, Jesus is acknowledging, oh yeah, you'll be killed. Yeah, you will be persecuted. Oh yeah, painful things can happen. It will happen. And we hear that, it's shocking to us. (laughs) But, 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 I remember camping back before we had kids and a wife, before I had a wife and kids, I would... uh, Every once in a while I'll do tent camping, and then I went uh, without tents. And um, a few times it happened. Uh, I remember one time very vividly I had the tent set up. We were out in the mountains, and just, you know, somewhere about 12, you hear the, the pit pats on the tent. It turns into a, a rainfall. <laughs> and so your only hope then at that point is, okay, don't touch the tent. Don't let the water come in. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's no longer warm at all. It's just cold. And, oh, what's that water coming in the bottom? And, and now there's water. I'm sleeping in water. And, and then, think, well, I sure hope it stops so I can get out and, light it, get, and just get outside and let the sun get on me. But there's no stopping. It's, it's now 8 in the morning. I haven't slept a wink. And I'm sitting here thinking, oh, I've got to take your tent down in the rain. And I've got to put it all in a bag. And you're just wet and you're cold. But you endure it all. Because you know you're not living there. The only thought is then, I cannot wait to get in a hot shower. And then get nice and cozy in my bed and take a nap. 
And you, and you, and you start telling yourself probably like leaven when it's cold and it's raining on you. And you endure it all. And you go through it all. And you even have a good time. You laugh through it all. You see, Jesus sees our life as just sitting in a tent for a little while. He says, there is a resting place. There is a destination. That's what matters. It doesn't matter if it rains on you for a little bit. It doesn't matter if, it, if you're miserable for a little while. Don't, don't fear the ones that can make your life miserable now. Don't fear the ones that all they can do is kill you. <laughs> you're like, what? Fear the one who can kill your soul. He has charge of body and soul. And the problem is that we have started putting wall hangings on our tent. And we're putting TVs in our tent. And, and we're getting big pillow top mattresses and putting them in our tent. And we're getting AC and we're putting it in our tent. And we're getting all the luxuries. It's like, can we get the refrigerator and put that in our tent too? And, and we, we're saying, can we get all this stuff that makes my life happy? And, and someone's saying to you, don't you know you're in a tent? I mean, you're going to pack this thing up and go. You get all this stuff in there and you get all your hopes set on this tent. It's just a tent. It's going to rain. What are you going to do then? And our life is starting to get more and more centered on the life that is. And, and God is just saying to us in this passage and, and he's saying, you know what? You're going to endure persecution if you desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus, I think, is code for us to understand being filled with the Spirit of God. The Spirit of Christ, in the sphere of Christ, in Him, identified with Him, loving Him, letting Him rule our life. And we say to God, but God, if I surrender to you, you might take the AC out of my tent. You might take the TV out of my tent. You might maybe sleep on the ground if I surrender to you. And, and you might even strip the tent away. And all we can see is what we lose. And we cannot see what we have in Christ. To be surrendered in Him. To say, Christ, You are my shepherd. I shall not won't. Isn't it funny how we cling to Psalm 23? But we don't cling to 2 Timothy 3. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me past righteousness for his name. Say, yea, they are walk through the valley of shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Let me just say that psalm is not just about when you die and when you have to go to the hospital. Maybe that psalm makes more sense that because you're following your shepherd is taking you in dangerous places. And you've got the rod and staff to comfort you of God. Which persecutions I endured. As I read this, and I say this to myself, and I think it's a question we need to ask ourselves. Why do I not have persecution? Why do I not have persecution? If the promise is true, if God's word is true, 
If God has foreknowledge, if he has this promise, if, if Jesus himself said that, and he did, either God lies, or maybe I am not in Christ Jesus living a godly life. Maybe I am not learning what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God. And if I'm not learning what it means to be filled with the Spirit of God, if I'm not experiencing God's working and surrendering to Him in my desires, then maybe I have just a form of godliness and I don't have the power. Well, verse 12, verse 13, if, if I'm not in verse 12, then the alternative verse 13, evil people and imposters will go on. Imposters, are we posing? We'll go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I am praying that perhaps through the Spirit's use of the Scripture, that He will open up our eyes, that perhaps maybe we are imposters and we are being deceived, and maybe, God, will you open up my eyes, open up the eyes of our church, that we can see truth, that we may not be deceived. came across this book called The Insanity of God, written by a name, a pseudonym, Nick Ripkin. Just some excerpts out of this. How is it possible to lead friends to become followers of Christ, knowing that their newfound faith could lead to their deaths? He's serving as a missionary in Somalia. This is Mogadishu, uh, Black Hot Down, Time, all that. If sharing with a friend could lead to my friend's death, will I share my faith anyway? Am I willing to live with what might happen next? He calls a time where he's doing a communion. He says, I felt honored to worship the Lord's table with these four brothers who are willing to risk their own blood, their own bodies, their very lives to follow Jesus among an unbelieving people group in this believing country. Never before had I felt the true cost and significance of Jesus' last supper with his disciples. It was just a few weeks later that the four believers in separate but coinciding instance were ambushed and killed on their way to work. A radical Muslim group later claimed credit. This same group started putting out a hit list. Those who were suspicious of being Christians, that they were to be killed, are friendly to a Western missionary Three of his men that were, that were on the, working on the company, they were not believers, they were Muslims, uh, were put on this list. They saw that and they pleaded with this man, Nick Ripkin, saying, can we please do something? He said, what can I do? He said, well, you can go to the militant Muslim stronghold and explain. <laughs> he just laughed. But then he did it. Walking through the streets of Mogadishu with armed guards the next day and seeing destruction and suffering everywhere. Why don't you just destroy these people, Lord? They've already killed almost all of your children in this country. Not one of these people deserves your salvation or your grace. The Spirit of God spoke to my heart in that instant. Neither do you, Nick. You are no less lost than they are. But by my grace, you were born in an environment where you could hear, understand, and believe. These people have not had that opportunity. Even while you are still a sinner, Christ died for you. 
And Christ died not only for you, Nick, but for every Somali in the Horn of Africa. So he goes on to meet with this local terrorist group. Claimed to identify individuals suspected of having converted to Christianity, those who are sympathetic or interested in the Christian faith, and those who are just close friends with Christians. All of these people, the list said, deserve to be killed. And visiting the stronghold of the most militant Islamic group to clear up the matter, he asked, why would we publish... He asked, why would they publish a list of 150 names when they knew that there were not many Christian believers in the entire country of Somaliland today? He asked that question. This is what they responded with. You're right. We believe there are probably no more than 40 or 50 Somali Christian traders left in our country. But we also know that if we lift the Christians, if we list the Christians that we already know about and add to list those that we're suspicious about, then we have a good chance of getting everyone. The next couple of days, a letter was sent to the editor of the, of the local paper there, uh, a paper of a militant Islamic group. And they asked the question, why bother killing Somali Christians? Wouldn't it be a more effective strategy just to kill the Westerners that they associate with whom they might convert? And the editor responded, killing Westerners might turn them into moderates. So it's not cost-effective to kill Western Christians whose deaths might possibly inspire additional committed believers to come to our country and take up each martyr's mantle. If, however, we kill the converts, the Western Christians will be afraid and they will go home. The Western Christian will not be able to watch their converts being killed. When their converts are killed, the Western Christians will leave. Nick Rippon Realize that was true. It's one thing for us to talk about us enduring something. But what if it's our children? What if it's a new believer? We see them walking in the faith and there's all kinds of potential in front of them. And before they seem like they even have half a chance to influence someone... They get snuffed out. And I remember dealing with a similar question and saying, God, why would you do that? That doesn't make much sense. That could be of such use. All the while, I'd forgotten. This is just a tent. It's just a tent. God seems to count our life a little bit differently than what we might think. It seems to me as we read the scripture that God isn't so much wringing his hands when a loved person's persecution or a loved person of Christ is being persecuted and killed. I don't get the sense that he's wringing his hands and saying, oh, what is this world coming to? But there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels, even still. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. It seems to me that when any person in Christ dies, there's a lot more rejoicing going on than when they were born here to begin with. And our mind... 
We can't see that. Because our eyes are filled with the things of this world. May we have eyes to see Christ. Our life is to count differently. Differently. As I read this, I know that we have members that will be placed in places like these countries. These are people who've sat where you've sat. And they've heard the truth of the word of God. You know who they are, most of you. They will be in places like this. Where they know good and well. If they share the gospel with someone. They pray to receive Christ. And becomes known even among their immediate family. Then there is potential of death at that point. Strong potential of death. And I look around and I ask. Why does that not happen here in America? When I look at it from the enemy's perspective, the one who hates Christ, the one who hates God, the one who hates all things of Christ and the people of Christ. And I ask, why is there not the same level of persecution in America as there are in places in the Middle East and other Asian places? And the answer isn't because of some heritage of Christian faith that this country is founded on. The answer seems to be simply because the persecution isn't needed in America. We silence ourselves. We need no threats. We're satisfied with things of ourselves, the tents of our own making. And as long as we can stay satisfied with the tents of our making, we have no desire to risk it when we share about Christ. The title of this passage is A Dismal, Glorious Future. Dismal and how we count the tent of this life. But glorious in what God has made us let me just finish that one point where paul says out of all these things god has rescued me from them all the lord rescued me verse 11 what did paul mean you rescued me because ultimately there was one that god didn't rescue him from ultimately he did die from persecution what did he mean If you go to the next chapter, verse 17 and 18, I think he explains that a little bit. But the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Let me read to you Romans 8 again. Hear it maybe with a different lens. 
What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, our distress, our persecution, our famine, our nakedness, our danger, our sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so let me ask you, is the love of God enough? Is the love of God enough? If it is enough, you would be more than conquerors and you will go through life with joy in your heart though things be taken though liberties be taken their children are lost there is a joy not a happiness not a, a cheerfulness but a joy a hope that is steadfast in your heart it is in this environment where jesus says look my fields are white unto harvest it wasn't fields filled with religious freedoms. It was a fields filled with people that needed to hear Jesus Christ. Just because liberties go down in our day and age, our joy does not. Do not be a whining Christian about rights once had as American citizens. Be as a Christian joyful that we can proclaim Christ wherever we are, whatever the consequence. This is not an easy message. It's not easy in my heart. But I need it. I need it. And I think we all do.